Okay, what's your thing? Like, what's your family's thing? What makes your family unique? My wife, Tracy, and I, we started this conversation this last summer as we were figuring out what our family vacations might look like. And this came up because, well, we have two young children. My son, Charlie, is three and a half. My daughter is 18 months. And it's kind of time. It's time for us to start establishing those rhythms for our family. And we don't really have anything that we look forward to every year. Um, Tracy's parents, they live on the Sacramento Delta. They have a house right on the water in Discovery Bay. But other than that, we haven't really taken an annual trip. Now, my wife's youngest sister has become a camper. Uh, They have, her and her family, they have this tent and an outdoor kitchen, and that's now their family's thing. They're, They're camping. And if you've been a serious camper, you know how quickly the cost of camping actually adds up as you're acquiring just all of this stuff. And it's not just a cost of money to acquire the the camping supplies. It's also the cost of space in your garage. So they better like it. This sister is actually leading an effort uh, to get an annual camping trip for the entire extended family. My wife has three sisters, uh, and they all are married, and all of them have kids. And so the plan is, is that every summer we go somewhere. Uh, this last summer we went to Pinecrest Lake um, and camp. And uh, camping is not my thing. Uh, but I do love the idea that my kids will start to look forward to a week at the lake with their cousins, that they'll anticipate it. And I love that decades from now, they'll have those memories of our family together and point to the way that these trips shape them into the adults that they're going to grow to be. But apart from this once-a-year trip, camping is not going to be our family thing. Uh, This last year, while most of the family camped, my family stayed in a nice, cozy cottage nearby. And this is fine, because none of our families are exactly alike. We don't all need to go camping, thank God. Uh, We all have preferences, like four walls, a roof, a bed. Uh, We have traditions that are unique to our families. We have rhythms that are unique to our families. And these things, they become a part of a family culture that's actually shaping us and shaping our children. They're formative. The things that we do, the things that we prioritize, they leave a mark on who we are, on who our children become. Now, my wife's oldest sister, Cassie, she has both her boys on traveling hockey teams. Their commitment to sports and traveling for various practices and tournaments uh, is one of the things that defines their family calendar. How many of you guys have been a part of a traveling sports team? Yeah, they're, they're relentless. Uh, and all of this commitment and this time and the work of being on a sports team is shaping her boys. It's shaping the boys into the men that they'll be. Her boys are learning about teamwork. They're learning about sportsmanship. And if they're really committed to hockey, they're going to learn about oral surgeons. <laughs> the point is that we commit our, uh, what we commit ourselves to is important. Our family culture is our legacy. The things that we establish or allow to become a part of our family culture, that's our legacy. Our culture shapes who we are. It's formative for our children. It's a determining factor in our children's futures. Which brings us to today's passage in Deuteronomy. You can open your Bibles to Deuteronomy 6. Deuteronomy is the fifth book of the Old Testament, uh, and it's the last of a five-book collection called The Torah. And if you're familiar with your 90s cartoon movies, you'll remember the great DreamWorks film, The Prince of Egypt. 
It's an animated telling of the Exodus story where God uses Moses, an unlikely but divinely appointed prince of Egypt, to free the Hebrew people from their slavery in Egypt. Now, the movie is great, but I assure you the book is better. It's a true story beloved by generations of people for thousands of years now. And now, if you've watched the movie, you might remember that God parts the Red Sea, and the Hebrew people, they walk across to safety on the other side. And when they reach the other side, the water crashes back down on the Egyptian soldiers who are in hot pursuit of them. And that's where the movie ends, but their story is just beginning. You see, the Hebrew people are not just saved from the Egyptians. They're saved for something as well. They're saved for God and his glory and that he might be known throughout the whole world. God has a purpose for them, and he has a purpose for us. So God leads them to Mount Sinai, where over the course of a year, the Hebrew people and God enter into a covenant. Uh, God gives them uh, the law, which includes the Ten Commandments, and these instructions actually form a culture for these people. The laws, the Ten Commandments, they're, they're defining what this new family of God is going to be like. God spells out for the, uh, their things, right? What they're supposed to do, how they're supposed to do it, what they're supposed to care about. God tells them how to relate to him, and God tells them how to relate to each other and to the larger world. Then God and his people set off for the promised land the land of Abraham, the land that would be home of these people, a new nation. But along the way, God decides to address his people's lack of faith by barring the current generation from entry into the promised land. Which brings us to the book of Deuteronomy. Moses is preparing the next generation to do what his generation could not, which was to trust God, to live faithfully, and to enter the promised land. So Deuteronomy is Moses' further explaining the law for the Hebrew people. It's a refresher course. It's a reestablishing of family culture for the Hebrew people before they entered that promised land. So today in Deuteronomy 6, uh, we're looking at a section of scripture that's in the middle of one of Moses' big speeches. Chapters 1 through 11, Moses gives a giant speech. And this particular passage is concerned with a right response to God after the previous generation struggled. A particular focus here is families, what our family life needs to look like um, in particular. And God's helping us to know what our primary thing needs to be. What's the thing that needs to define our family? You're going to notice in here that he doesn't mention hockey or camping. And that's not because those are bad things. They're fine. They're just not the ultimate thing. God is telling us here in this passage how to lean into the primary purpose of our families. He's calling us to be focused on something that he wants to shape our families for generations to come. So Moses, speaking for God, is calling Israel to listen up. In verse 4, he says, Listen, Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. My mother will tell you that I wasn't an argumentative child. I was pretty perfect. Uh, She'd tell me to do something, and I'd nod my head and say... Okay. The problem was, she would say things like, Matt, clean your room. Okay. Matt, do your homework. On it. Matt, can you help me? Sure. I heard my mother. 
I acknowledged hearing her even. The problem came with actually following through. Listen here captures only an element of what the Hebrew is communicating. It's one thing to hear your mother or to hear God, and it's another thing to actually be obedient to what you hear, to do what's being requested, what's being instructed, what's being advised. The Hebrew that our English Bibles translate as listen or hear has obey as an understanding. Obey Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It's not enough to know the right thing if we're just going to ignore it. It's not enough to know what God says. We need to do, we need to live into what God says. But when it comes to our relationship with God, this isn't often how we act. It's not how the Hebrew people act. In establishing a family culture that honors God, the most important thing that we can do is to live a life that demonstrates that our relationship with God matters. We show that it matters when we listen and are obedient, when we do what we're told to do. James, an apostle and brother of Jesus, challenges us in uh, chapter 1 of James, verse 22, to be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. A frequent deception of God's people has been idols, right? All throughout the Bible, we see that they're constantly falling prey to worshiping idols or false gods. And the Hebrew people even melt their jewelry into a calf while Moses is up on Mount Sinai getting ready to bring him down the Ten Commandments. So Moses is up on the mountain, and they're already worshiping idols. It's like instant. And this isn't just a one-time thing. Later, the people, even their kings, are going to worship the false gods of other nations. This is kind of a big deal. First things first, right? Like, what are your priorities? Through Moses, God is saying, listen up. I'm the one and only God. Listen, Israel. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. And he's not just the one God. He's their God. Look at that. The Lord our God. The Lord our God. And who is this God? What's his intentions? This is what Moses says right before uh, verse 4 and verse 3. He says, listen, Israel, and be careful to follow them so that you may prosper and multiply greatly because the Lord your God of your ancestors has promised you a land flowing with milk and honey. Listen, Israel, to the one and only God, a good God who created you, who freed you, and has a beautiful plan for your life. Listen to him. And how do we do that? What does God want us to do? God wants us to be devoted to him. Look at verse 5. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Jesus echoes this in Matthew 22 when he's asked, what's the most important command? Love God with all that you got. Be fully and wholly devoted to him. The heart here in this passage is not talking about emotion. It's not asking you to just be super passionate for Jesus or just super passionate for God though it's also talking about emotion. But at this time, culturally, the heart was understood to be the source of our will, the source of our will, the place where we make decisions. So the heart is the decision factory of our lives. This is more than emotion. It implies action. It implies intent. Don't just listen. Do. Don't just feel. Make a choice. 
this command here, it's a callback to the first two commandments, right? Of the Ten Commandments, first two. Do not have any other gods beside me. Do not make an idol for yourself, whether in the shape of anything in the heavens above or on the earth below or in the waters under the earth. Do not bow and worship to them and do not serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Okay. God wants us to be all in for him. Like, that should be our primary thing. The primary thing that defines our family culture is God. He wants our total devotion, and he deserved our total devotion. But what God gets is a bunch of people who follow him half-heartedly. We turn created things into idols, or we make secondary things into primary things. Our lives are often just disordered. Our lack of priorities or our bad priorities are creating chaos in our families. Our children watch what we do, and they see what's most important to us. They know our priorities, not by what we say, but by what we do. Career, education, athletics, entertainment, social media. Our disordered devotion to these things has a cost. When we make our relationship with God the tenth thing on our list, we're making a terrible choice. A terrible choice for ourselves, but also for our children who are watching what we value, what we worship in place of God. We often hear talk about the godless parts of society. But the research shows in America, we often don't talk about how frequently Christians have godless homes. Verse 6. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Moses is telling us, you need to be all in for God. You need to be devoted to him. Hebrew people, as you're preparing to enter the promised land, keep the first commandment. Keep the first commandment. Put nothing before your relationship with God. Now, I told you this is about family, right? And it is. Your kids are watching. And parents, hear me. Your personal prioritization of Jesus is of huge importance in passing the faith to your children. The research shows the number one influence on a child's faith isn't their youth pastor, it's their parents. They know what you value. You're teaching your children with your lives. My son, Charlie, he's three and a half years old, and uh, this last spring he grabbed his toy laptop. He has a toy laptop. My mom got it for him. It's silly. Um, And he also grabbed his children's Bible, and he told Tracy that he was working like daddy. So it was, it was really cute, um, except my wife tells me that his typing was rather aggressive and he seemed really frustrated. So while he knew that uh, my laptop and my Bible were important to me, I somehow need to better communicate to him the joy of teaching God's word. But Charlie is a long way off from preaching. One of my first hopes is that we can instill in Charlie just a love for the Word of God, that he would pick up that children's Bible and love the story that it tells, a story of a God who loves him, a story of a God who went to the cross for him. Let's look at verse 6 and 7. These words that I'm giving you today are to be in your heart. Repeat them to your children. So from our relationship with God, right, it starts with the parents. From our relationship with God, uh, we then pass that down to the next generation. 
Now, it's not just parents, it's grandparents, it's aunts and uncles, it's family friends. All the adults in your child's life are influencing them, and we want them to repeat this to them, right? This isn't a one-time event. We don't just sit down our kid, uh, tell them the gospel, and then say, okay, you're on your own. No, we, we repeatedly go back to the scriptures and remind them again and again of God's goodness. Any teacher will tell you that they utilize repetition to try to help their students grasp concepts or directions. I can't tell you how many times I hear my wife, who's a high school teacher, lament that she told a student that eight times and they still forgot to put their name on their paper. And it's not just teachers who are repeating things. The advertising industry is like founded on reputation, uh, repetition. Have you noticed this? How many times have you seen the same commercial? And not just like the same commercial for some obscure brand, but like a brand that we all know, a brand that's like going to be in our minds for the rest of our lives. Like, does McDonald's really need to tell us that we're loving it? Apparently they do because they spend billions of dollars to remind us every year. So I want to try something because we're so inundated with advertising. I want to just see how well it has sunk into all of our brains. So I'm going to say a slogan, and I want you guys to finish it, okay? I'm going to say the slogan. You guys are going to finish it. Here we go. Like a good neighbor? Nice. Okay. Yes. So State Farm is a good neighbor, and hopefully we're better ones. Um, okay, let's do one more. Uh, this one's a classic. I haven't heard it recently, but it's, it's from my childhood, and it's been pretty inundated in my brain. So if you're over 30, you should have this one down too. So let's try this. Give me a break. Give me a break. Yeah, break me off a piece of that Kit Kat bar. Nice. Repetition clearly works. So let's repeat uh, the gospel. Let's repeat scripture to our children. Let's teach them the things of God over and over and over again so that it sinks into their brains, but also into their hearts. Now, just because repetition works, um, it doesn't mean uh, that, you know, we're off the hook, right? We can, we can repeat things over and over again, uh, but our children need to actually listen. So uh, the Bible tells us this. It says, listen, my son, to your father's instructions, and don't reject your mother's teaching. So it's not just the parent's responsibility. Teenagers, it's your responsibility, too. It's your responsibility to listen to your parents. Uh, One of the things that I love about this passage is that we see both parents are present here. Now, as Dave mentioned earlier, not every family has both parents who are active believers um, in the child's life. Uh, When I was in fourth grade, my uh, father had a massive stroke, and he wasn't able to disciple me the way that my mother could because of his disabilities. And God is going to use every family situation. He's going to use every individual to do a good work in the life of our children. So when you're in those unique family situations, know that I, I understand and so does God. And in here where we see like father's instruction and mother's teaching, this isn't necessarily like prescriptive. Like it's the father's job to instruct and it's the mother's job to teach. Uh, no, it's a shared responsibility that both parents have to disciple their children. But in addition to seeing both parents active in the lives of their children, one of the things I like in this verse is that we see two different elements of teaching, right? So there's this idea of, like, teaching that might be, like, doctrine, right? Like, teaching your kids about the Trinity or uh, teaching them the books of the Bible. But then there's this other one, instruction. And that might be more, like, application. Like, how do we live? 
Like, we've seen plenty of people who could pass, like, a crazy Bible quiz. They could write down all of this information on really obscure theological concepts, but they haven't found a way to live it out yet. The world doesn't need more theologians with just dry knowledge in their head. The world needs Christians who are passionate about moving that knowledge from the head to the heart, to living it out. When my family came to join this faith family, we did so knowing that we have a responsibility, right? This isn't just the responsibility of parents. It's also the responsibility of the church. And so my wife and I came knowing that we we have a responsibility to the children of this church. And that's not just because my primary responsibility um, is family ministry. No, it's my responsibility as a member of this faith family. It's your responsibility as a member of a faith family of this faith family. It's all of our responsibility to disciple our children, my children, other people's children. All of us get to speak into the lives of these children to encourage them, to teach them, to instruct them on how they should live their life in response to who God is. And we have a particular responsibility to the children and the students in our congregation who do not come from Christian homes or whose parents are still new to the faith themselves. So as I'm sitting here this morning, and a lot of what I'm saying is directed at parents, know that it's not just parents, it's grandparents and aunts and uncles, and it's the entire congregation, because my children are your children. We meet this responsibility as a church in a couple of different ways. One of them is our Sunday school program. Um, So we have our Sunday school program, and what's unique about our Sunday school program is it's run by the families who benefit from it, ideally. So if you benefit from the program, if your children are in the Sunday school program, then it's your job to serve in the Sunday school program. And that's formative for our children, but it's also formative for us as parents. Because let's face it, sometimes it's difficult to teach the Bible to our children, or we can feel intimidated by it. And so when you're preparing a lesson and when you're being coached to prepare a lesson uh, for a group of children, it's going to be that much easier uh, to provide the lesson at home. So if you're intimidated uh, to teach your children, I encourage you to get involved in Sunday school where we can help equip you and train you in the good work of investing in our children. And that's not the only opportunity that we have for you as a, as a family to get involved in the discipling of your children. One of the other ways that we want you to get involved is we want you to join community groups. Last Sunday, we had a great launch of our community groups for this next year. My wife and I, we joined the Sunday night group with Ted. We're super excited. And in those community groups, just doing life with other Christians and and having your kids see you engage in conversation about the things of God, that's going to be preparing you Um, to disciple your children, but it's also inviting all of these other adults. It's inviting the church to come in and disciple your children as well. So those are two important opportunities. It's two ways that the church is partnering with the family. So you have a primary responsibility for your children if you're a parent, um, and we're not going to usurp that, but we are going to encourage that. We're going to partner with you. We're going to resource you to support you in living faithfully in this area. Now, Part of the repetition that we're instructed to provide for our children uh, comes from the church echoing. So that's another reason why we have Sunday school, right? We want to echo what you're saying at home. And one of the ways we do that is we let you guys know what we're teaching in Sunday school so that you can uh, prepare and have conversations afterwards with your children about what they're learning. When our children come to church, they should be hearing a community of adults and teens. Right now we have so many teens who are investing in our younger children. 
um, and other children who are reminding them of the truths of Scripture. So be intentional in your teaching. And after that, don't stop the conversation. Okay? The teaching of our children, this isn't just supposed to be a formal lecture or reciting verses. It's supposed to be an ongoing conversation. Verse 7. Repeat them to your children. Talk about them when you sit in your house and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. I love this verse because it's implying that we're instructing and having conversations about faith with our children all day long, right? We're talking about it with them in our home. We're talking about it outside of the home. We're talking about it in the morning. We're talking about it as they go to bed. Conversations about faith should consume our day. When we're sitting down for dinner as a family, is a huge one. It used to be something that American families did all the time. I hope your family has a tradition of sitting down at the table. Uh, this church just recently completed a, like, what, two, three, ten-year study of the book of Luke. Um, and as we were preaching through the book, book of Luke, you probably noticed how many times Jesus sat down at a table with his disciples or with a group of people, and he taught them the scripture. I encourage you families to consider how you can use the dinner table to teach your children how to engage them in conversations about faith. One of these uh, meals that we see Jesus teach is um, the Last Supper, where we get our practice of communion from. So too often we're grabbing dinner on the way to some activity, uh, but I invite you to find time, once or twice a week even, to have those family dinners together. Now, my family might be weird, uh, but growing up, I remember our family meals with extended family often turned into deep conversations on theology, maybe even a little bit of uh, debates. Now, my parents met at their family's Methodist church, Sunnyvale Methodist, uh, but over the years, the family kind of dispersed from the Methodist tradition into other traditions. So at our family meals, we had Baptist, and we had non-denominational, and we even had some uh, brothers and sisters uh, who attended the local Assemblies of God church. Uh, So there was all kinds of different Christian traditions represented at our family tables. And so after the meal, we would often have a friendly debate um, about right Christian practice um, or theological concepts at the dinner table. Um, And you might think, gosh, that sounds like a real mood killer to a family dinner. But no, talking about God's sovereignty um, as a family was awesome. (laughs) I love that. And I think it's a reason why I'm so into theology and the Bible today is because I soaked that in, seeing that all of my parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles cared about this, cared about this enough to have passionate conversations, respectful, passionate conversations about the things of God. C.S. Lewis um, once wrote, Is any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of Christian friends by a fire? One of my first weeks here was uh, with the students up at camp, and just getting to sit down with them and have a conversation about the things of God, that was an amazing privilege. It was an amazing pleasure. I love this. But he asked, is there any pleasure on earth as great as a circle of Christian friends by a fire? I'd say, yeah, a Christian family. The Christian family talking about the things of faith. I love my conversations about faith with my mother. Uh, My mom is one of those people who got me into theology um, as she was digging into, like, the writings of, like, R.C. Sproul and and just growing in her faith. Her growth inspired me to grow. Later today, I'm looking forward to being with Tracy's family. We're we're going up to the Delta. We're going uh, to her parents' place. Um, Her 
second oldest sister just had a baby. So we're going to go meet our new nephew for the very first time. And what we were hoping was going to be a small, intimate family gathering is now four generations of her family uh, gathering together. And I know that it's going to end uh, with us on the back deck of her family's house by a fire, talking about life, but also talking about faith. And we're in this really sweet time where I'm not the only one who's recently taken a call at a new church. Her father actually completed seminary in January, and he just accepted a call too. So both of us are in new churches, and it's going to be really fun to talk about how God's moving in our churches. And I'm really looking forward to sharing how amazing this community is. Now, in addition to sitting down in this passage, we see walking on the road in verse 7. So the road is another great venue for discussion. I don't know how many of us regularly take family walks. Do anybody take family walks? Okay, some of us. Awesome. Um, Those of us who do, we know that this can be a great time for family conversations. Um, I know a father who took regular walks with his son from the time his son was first able to walk. And his son would ask the big questions of life, like, what's that, daddy? (laughs) Pointing to a flower, or then eventually asking why the sky was blue. And now he's a young man. He's in his 20s, and he's asking his father about faith and relationships and vocation. Big, powerful conversations are happening on these family walks. So I encourage you, grab your children, grab your teens, grab other people in your life. Maybe you're the one who needs to be poured into. You're never too old to call your mom for a walk. And I get that family walks aren't super common anymore. Not all of us in this room raised our hand. But what I think about this passage and the time that it was written, walking was the primary mode of transportation. And what's our primary mode of transportation? The cars, right? Yeah. Now, my encouragement to you in the spirit of this passage is don't neglect the car as a place for discussing faith with your children. I can't tell you how many deep conversations I've had with students on the way to and from youth activities or to or from youth camps. I once had a three-hour bus ride. We were going up to the Sacramento, not uh, to, the, to Lake Shasta for a houseboating camp. And a student peppered me with questions about God's sovereignty, um, about free will, about human sinfulness and suffering. It was awesome. Like a three-hour like, theology quiz in some ways. I loved every minute of it, and I was so grateful for how God chose to use that drive. Now, parents, particularly parents of teens, I know your drives are probably going to be shorter most of the time. Uh, You know, you're 15 minutes on the way to soccer practice. But I'd encourage you to be intentional about that car ride. This actually might even be a strategic place for you, right? Because you and your kid are both strapped in, and your kids can't get away from you. There's no running away from you unless your student plans on walking to their soccer practice or if they are really motivated to bail out of the car. So don't waste this opportunity. Our cars can be sacred places. I've heard more than one person tell me that they actually accepted Christ in the backseat of their family minivan. Their mother pulled over to the side of the road and prayed the Lord's Prayer with them. Our cars can be sacred. So this passage in just a few verses has so much for us to learn about creating a faith-based family culture. It's about seizing every opportunity. It's about being intentional about teaching our children and about sprinkling it in throughout our entire days. We need to have our own passionate faith that we're passionate about sharing with our children. But that's not all the instructions in this passage. We're also told that we need to make it memorable. Now, I don't have the best memory in the world. I'm pretty reliant on taking notes, and I've moved digital, so they're usually in my phone um, or using the sticky apps in my computer. I love the sticky apps in my computer. Um, And I like the stickies best because they tend to stay in front of me um, a little bit better. So... With that in mind, let's go to verse 8. 
Bind them as a sign on your hand, and let them be a symbol on your forehead. Write them on your doorpost of your house and on your city gates. I love that. Bind them on your hand, on your forehead. Now, scholars aren't sure whether these verses were intended to be followed literally or not. But this practice is actually literally used in some Jewish communities today. Like, there is a man with a leather prayer box strapped to his forehead. It's a phylactery. Um, They also will strap it onto their arms. Um, And inside that leather box is a passage of scripture. Um, And so if you are strapping that box to your head, to your arm, you're going to remember (laughs) the things of God. Um, Often this is worn during uh, morning prayer, but today it's most commonly used during, like, the high holy days in the Jewish calendar. So, great reminder. When I was growing up, I did something a little bit similar. It wasn't a box. It was a WWJD bracelet. Um, what would Jesus do, right? So I had that on my uh, wrist. All the kids in the youth group did. It was a reminder that we were living into a bigger story, but also that we were following a God who had uh, spoken to us, who had given us wisdom, and who wanted us to live rightly. So I'm in full support of surrounding your house with things that remind you of your faith. Like, leave the Bible out and open. One of the best things you can actually do is read your Bible in front of your children, uh, but also put crosses on the wall. Go for it. Have Bible verses on your coffee mugs. Um, what you want to be doing is you want to be putting the things of God in your view at all times so that you remember what's of utmost importance. One of the other things that I like about this prayer box is that it's not just a visual reminder. It's also a tactile reminder, right? Like if you have that strapped to your forehead, you're aware that it's there. And one of the things that we see in the Jewish tradition and throughout Scripture is that God utilizes all five of our senses to remind us of the story, okay? So an example, incense, which we see used in worship in the Jewish uh, culture. Um, That incense is a reminder of the joy of the Lord. It's also a reminder, um, as we look at the rising fragrant smoke, of the people of God sending their prayers to God. So ascending prayers is uh, visualized in that smoke. We also see that the Jewish people, they celebrated festival meals. And one of the ones that we're most familiar with is the Passover Seder, which is the last supper that Jesus is celebrating. And in that meal, there's symbolic foods that are telling the story of the Exodus. So the Seder is a telling of the Exodus story through a family meal, through shared um, experience, and through an experiential meal. So the bitter herbs that are served are supposed to remind uh, those who are eating it, of the bitterness of slavery. And then you see the unleavened bread to remind the people of just the the unexpected pilgrimage the Jewish people went on. So this meal is sensory, it's dramatic, it's a retelling of a story that's core to their identity. So as we're teaching our children, look for ways to engage all five senses in the story of our faith. So God doesn't just use vivid imagery um, in worship or in uh, this Uh, annual festival, he also uses uh, imagery and symbols in other places in scripture. Like he asked Jeremiah to buy a linen waist cloth, and then he causes it to be spoiled to show how the Lord would spoil the pride of Judah. God's teaching us through imagery there. So parents, church, let's get creative in how we're telling our children about scripture, how we're reminding them of the things of God. Okay. I've been talking for a little while, and I've given you guys a really long to-do list of things to do. And here's what I don't want you to miss out on. Moses is urging the descendants of people who doubted God 
who worshipped idols and struggled with faith. This is a sense of importance and urgency for him because he's talking to the descendants of losers who failed. What could be more important than living faithfully to the God of the universe? Perhaps this morning you're feeling the weight of your responsibility. Maybe you're feeling a little bit like a parenting loser. You're evaluating the ways that you've discipled your children and realizing that maybe you didn't do it as you would hope. Parents, I don't intend for this to be a message of guilt. In spring of 2020, as COVID was hitting, I started to realize that COVID was not going to go away. And I had a two-year-old and a newborn. I was stretched at work. I was trying to finish seminary. Tracy was busy caring for our two children so I could do my work in my seminary. And I spent a lot of time worrying about my son and just worrying about the things that he was missing out on. And one of those things was Sunday school. Like, we weren't going to church. He didn't have Sunday school. And actually, it wasn't just Sunday school. It was also his preschool. Charlie had just started preschool before the pandemic hit. He only went like three or four weeks. And his school, both his preschool and his Sunday school, tried valiantly to keep something going. So they had once-a-week Zoom Sunday school classes and a Zoom preschool class. And Charlie hated these with a passion. And I know after like 18 months of too many Zoom calls, I think we all hate Zoom calls, that we're grateful for God's provision of them. Um, But Charlie hated them instantly. And his favorite part of these Zoom calls was saying goodbye at the end and shutting the laptop down. It was really heartbreaking. Uh, And it was really concerning because here I am, like a pastor, and I want my kid to know the things of God and and to have a vibrant faith, and he's not getting it from the church. Um, and so I was so worried about his Christian education and all that he was missing out on that I went out and I bought a Sunday school curriculum. Like, honestly, I bought a curriculum that was designed for an entire church because I needed to do something. So in this moment of zealous foolishness, I buy a Sunday school curriculum, and I thought in my head that in my free time while I was, you know, finishing seminary and working a full-time job, relearning how to do youth ministry over the internet, that I would have time to adapt this curriculum into like 15-minute chunks for my son. Well, it was a great idea, and I quickly learned that I was not going to accomplish that, the curriculum still sitting on our shelf. And I think this is sometimes our responsibility, or our response to our Christian responsibility. We like go all in, and we, we get too intense, and we make it too big and too hard, and then we crash and burn, and it sits on our shelf. This last year, as I've been reading about different practices of family worship, of family devotion, I've been struck by our Puritan ancestors who didn't try to launch hour-long devotions with their family. No, they kept it simple. They kept it fast. Just a few minutes. They'd sing a song, they'd read a passage, and they'd discuss it briefly. There was no deep theological seminary course happening at the breakfast table. It was an encouragement for the day. So you don't need to launch a Sunday school uh, in your living room. You just need to open your Bible for a few minutes. And given the stakes, given the instruction of Scripture, that might not feel like enough. But here's what I want you to know. It isn't enough. Because we're not enough. We can't save our children. There's nothing that you and I can do to save our children. All we can do is be faithful to pass along the faith. And then we need to trust Jesus to do the work of salvation. The Hebrew people go on to make the same mistake that the previous generation made. In fact, after they occupy the promised land, the book of Judges records just a downward spiral of God's people constantly rejecting him over and over and over again. They were called back to faith, and then they reject him again. It's terrible. And I want to remind you that the Hebrew people, what they experienced when they were in Egyptian slavery, 
They didn't save themselves. It was God who rescued them. It was God who redeemed them. And when God led them through the desert to Mount Sinai, it was God who established the covenant with them. And God did all of this before they did anything, before it was even possible. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus asked, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? We might be asking what we can do to get our children eternal life. The answer is the same. We don't do anything. This is a gift from Jesus. We love because he first loved us. He empowers us to love him, actually. So we can read Deuteronomy 6, and we can see this list and feel completely hopeless for ourselves and for our kids because we feel like we're failing and we can't achieve salvation for ourselves, let alone our kids. But when we look at ourselves and when we look at the law and when we look at God's response to our failures, we see that over and over and over again, he takes faithless people and he welcomes them into the family of faith. Over and over again, we mess up, and he returns again to invite us back into the family. Like, this whole speech is God speaking through Moses to a people who had just failed, and he's giving them another chance. He's going to do a good work in them. And more than that, this old covenant, it's a foretaste. It's a foretaste of the new covenant that you and I know. This is the prophet Jeremiah. Look at what he's saying here. He says, look, the days are coming. This is the Lord's declaration. When I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, this one will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors on the day I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt. Okay, the covenant's not going to be like what Moses gave. My covenant that they broke, even though I'm their master. The Lord's declaration. Instead, this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days. The Lord's declaration. I will put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I will put my teaching within them and write them on their hearts. Parents, God wants to use you to do this. Church, God wants, us to, wants to use us to do this. But he's going to do this as he wills. I'll put my teaching within them and write it on their hearts. I'll be their God and they will be my people. No longer will one teach his neighbor or his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me. I love that. This is our future hope. We're living in this tension time right now where we're at the already and not yet. So already God is the author of our faith, and we know that in the end he's going to perfect our faith. He's going to forgive our iniquities, and he's never again going to remember our sins. So parents, be encouraged. You have a good God who is faithful even when we're not. He'll be faithful to us. He'll be faithful to our children. Church, as we wrap things up, let me just encourage you for a moment. So what the Bible says. It says, therefore, encourage one another and build each other up as you already are doing. I'm still new on my parenting journey. My son's not yet four. And one of the best parts of being in a church family, honestly, is the encouragement that comes from others who are on the road or others who have been down the road. I remember just before the pandemic began, I was at an elders meeting at my previous church. And afterwards, this wise man, actually the man who would take his son on walks, he pulled me aside, and he asked me how I was doing. And I was fine. I wasn't, like, in crisis or anything. Um, But he listened to me patiently talk about the difficulties of managing my job and raising a young family. And he encouraged me. He offered me advice. He prayed for me. I can actually point to, like, a dozen different people, different brothers and sisters from my church families who have encouraged me as a parent. 
So, church, even if your kids are, are gone and raised, you can encourage me. And even if you are somebody who doesn't yet have children, you can encourage us too. My friend Sarah uh, was the children's director at one of my churches, and she didn't have kids of her own, but she loved kids. She loved me and my family. She invested in us. She encouraged us from where God had her in her life. She had a vital ministry to my family and to our children. Carry one another's burdens. Well, I was trying to launch a Sunday school in my living room. My son's Sunday school teacher sent home a couple of coloring pages and a cute activity. She made a fishing pole with a magnet on the end, and then she gave us like little cutouts of fish with uh, paper clips on it so that my son could go fishing while we talked about fishing for men. That was such a gift. We can do little things to encourage parents who are overwhelmed and stressed out. We can do big things to encourage them too. One of the things that we're doing is we have a Sunday school here, and it has been faithfully run um, since COVID has started. We've been doing church on the lawn. Um, and one of the things that I've been working on is getting ready to relaunch it. Um, it's running, but I, we want to expand it. We want to pour new life and new energy into it. We want to get back in the building, um, and we want to just return to kind of full strength there this fall. And so one of the things that we can do as a church, one of the ways that we can partner with parents and help disciple their children is we can get involved in the Sunday school ministry. So if you've taken a pause or a break, we have an opportunity for you to come back. If you haven't yet served in the Sunday school ministry, we have an opportunity for you to get involved. We'd love for you to be involved. None of us bear the weight and the responsibility of raising and discipling our children alone. This is a shared responsibility. It's a shared responsibility that we get to lean into. So, friends, I don't just want you to put your children in our programs. I also want you to join a community group. Like, I'm just going to echo that. Like, get involved in the life of the larger church so that you're around people who can carry your burdens and who can encourage you. A place where you and your children can be encouraged. Because that's what God gives us. Not only is God the author of our faith, but he gives us a church family to do this in. Will you pray with me? Uh, Father, I just look at the responsibility that we have to... Um, disciple our children, to raise them um, in the Christian family, uh, to help them to know you. And Father, I am so grateful and encouraged that we don't do this alone, but that you do it. Uh, You do it through us. You do it through us as parents. You do it through us as uh, grandparents and aunts and uncles and as brothers and sisters in the church family. And so, Lord, I just ask that you would encourage us uh, to partner with you, to partner with the church in the discipling of our children and in the discipling of of the children of this uh, community. Lord, we thank you for your goodness. In your name we pray, amen.